from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCoward here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, it's all climate all the time, more or less. We'll make sense of the first week of COP21. Look at how LinkedIn, IDEO, and others are taking innovative approaches to climate action. Take a look at materials matchmaking, and we're off to Paris. It's Bon Voyage this week on 350. It's Friday, December 4th, 2015. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Here in Green Biz Studio, once again, is Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Lauren, what's going on? I'm <laughs> just trying to stay above water at this point. I know. I, I woke up Monday morning, I swear, to the sound of my inbox sizzling. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised my computer hasn't actually exploded, but it, we'll see. The press release is coming out of uh, the Paris Climate Talks. I mean, first of all, Monday morning was uh, in Paris was when uh, Obama and Putin and uh, Merkel and everybody gave their remarks, and every every one of their press offices put out something. Um, you know, every guru in the planet seemed to have a comment on each of those speeches, and, it was, and, and but that but that's the least of it because, I mean, we're hearing from pretty much everybody about everything. Yeah, I mean, the commitments are starting to pile up, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, But I'm really curious to see once we get there on the ground to make sense of what's what. You've got literally all these huge issues from climate finance to deforestation to renewable energy. It really is just a ton of stuff to sort of make sense of. I mean, oceans, agriculture, just, you know, I mean, it just makes sense because everything is tied to climate change. But the other thing that's going on this week while all that's happening is uh, some shakeups and turmoil in, in, in leadership in some energy companies. Yeah, we've jumped on a couple of breaking stories this week. One of the biggest, I think, was NRG Energy. They're a big independent power producer, um, made their money on coal and other fossil fuels. They're worth about $3 billion now. And their chief executive, David Crane, who's been at the head of the company for about 12 years and is really one of the leading voices for the transition to low-carbon energy, is officially out. He resigned um, effective immediately yesterday, though he will stay on with the company to sort of guide the transition. Um, but really what's interesting is this comes in the wake of a sh- another shakeup, as Joel alluded to, at Solar City. Um, they've had some change at the top in terms of their executives. And Sun Edison has also been in the news uh, after their share prices have slid more than 80% this year. So really what we're seeing is sort of this clash between Wall Street and their focus on short-term financial returns and these longer-term gambits around clean energy. Yeah, you can really see that in the NRG story. I mean, uh, they are at, at once uh, one of the leading providers of renewable energy, but they're also, I, I think, the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the United States. They have uh, a legacy of, uh, through, largely through acquisitions, of coal and, and um, natural gas plants. Uh, and so uh, David Crane has been you know, trying to push the company forward in, in you know, really being a leader in developing not just... Uh, uh, renewable energy and and uh, the, even the most efficient uh, gas-fired plants and even some carbon sequestration experiments going on down in Texas uh, and looking to build out a sort of a green company at the same time they have this brown company and which is where all the profits are and so the board you know looking at shareholder interest 
uh, really wanted to push that, and I think that's probably where the schism happened that led to his uh, departure. It really does speak to the inflection point uh, where renewables are right now is, you know, sort of on the cusp of being a, a really big business, at least at the utility scale. They already are on the independent companies. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to, and I think even with Solar City and others, you know, as these companies mature, as the markets get bigger and bigger and bigger, as more companies make 100% renewables commitments, uh, these companies are going to be, uh, the companies providing renewables are going to be sort of going through all kinds of turmoil. And this is one, we've seen some of that this week. Right. I'm curious to see how that plays out in terms of the emissions goals that some of these energy players are setting. I know NRG um, set a really big commitment last year to cut their carbon emissions 90% by 2050. Granted, that's a really long time horizon, but it does go beyond sort of what they're required to do by law. So we'll definitely be curious to see what the new executive regime decides to do with that. Well, we've already kind of jumped into it, but this is the part of the program where we take a look at the Green Biz Week in Review. So, Lauren, what's on the agenda? What, uh, I'm sort uh, of lost track. Paris, of, Paris, yeah. and more Paris, I yeah, think. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a cop-out, perhaps, but so <laughs> be it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I've been looking at sort of a couple of hot topics, I guess, that have emerged in the first week of the UN climate negotiations. Yes, COP21 in Paris. Um, we've seen a lot of focus on deforestation. Unilever and Marks and Spencer were two of the consumer companies that uh, were in the news this week for committing to some more aggressive uh, anti-deforestation measures, though there has been um, some question among activist groups, um, specifically those like the, the Rainforest Alliance, that are um, maybe not so convinced that this is different than business as usual. We'll have to see how that plays out. There's also been the construction industry working on some public-private cooperation, and food security has really come to the negotiating table in a big way. Yeah, and this is important because deforestation accounts for about 12% of human-caused carbon dioxide emissions. It's the second biggest source after burning fossil fuels. And forests haven't always been part of the climate negotiations, at least not as prominently as they should. Uh, and there's a lot of countries that have included forest management in their the proposed climate commitments this year. And I think companies uh, you know, that have supply chains for palm oil and uh, just a lot of soy and a lot of crops uh, out of uh, Asia, South America, and, and elsewhere are looking at this now as something that they need to pay attention to, and, and their stakeholders, and in some cases their shareholders, see this as a risk factor. Right. Certainly much harder to ignore when Indonesia has literally been on fire for the last couple of months. Um, but I will say that also another big area has been sort of following the money at COP21. Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, two tech billionaires, obviously, um, started off the week with a boom when they announced the creation of a fund that's going to be worth a couple, more than a billion dollars to fund clean energy. Uh, that comes also as there's a lot of talk about developing nations asking for $100 billion to be set aside for climate financing. Yeah, and it's not just investment. It's also divestment that uh, 350, the organization uh, that Bill McKibben co-founded, 350.org, uh, announced this week that the divestment commitments have passed the $3.4 trillion 
uh, dollar mark. So $3.4 trillion of, of investments, institutional investments, uh, and some others that have committed to divesting themselves of fossil fuels. What the impact of this on the fossil fuel companies, uh, it's unclear whether it's going to be a blip for them at all. Um, I mean, they've got much b- bigger fish to fry right now with oil under $40 a barrel. Their stocks are not happy. But um, uh, coal companies, similarly, uh, in their stocks are just way, way down. Uh, but this is, a, you know, the money piece of this is, is playing much larger at COP than ever before. I will say my head is starting to spin a little bit, though, because no, because you said you threw out that huge trillion dollar number. But that comes on the back of all these big banks saying Goldman Sachs has said we're going to throw one hundred and fifty billion dollars at renewable energy. Citi has said one hundred billion for clean energy and Bank of America has said one hundred and twenty five billion for low carbon business. So what does this mean? Where do these dollars end up? It's going to be a huge story. Well, and, and the question I think we'll, we'll be looking at, uh, I know uh, Barbara's working on a story, Barbara Grady, senior writer, is um, you know, how do these uh, commitments from the banks, like, like the type you just said in Goldman Sachs and a bunch of others, um, I mean, some of those are investments, some of that's philanthropy, some of those are loans. Uh, how does that fit into this $100 billion that the developing countries say that they need to do their part, or, or in some cases, in the case of uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi of India, he calls it reparations, uh, which is a bit of a loaded word, particularly mm-hmm. here in the United States. But in any case, will any of that bank money, is that part of this $100 billion, or where does, how does that fit in? That's something we're, we're trying to find out. I think it really gets to a broader issue that we're seeing. We saw it both in the lead up to COP and I think it's starting to play out in Paris. And that's a little bit of this chicken and egg conundrum between the public and private sectors. This really is sort of a huge litmus test for a lot of the rhetoric we've heard about both sides needing to come together, both sides need to put up the money and take leadership roles. Um, But really, what does that mean in practice? And I think that's sort of what we're seeing as they flesh that out. Well, one of the things we'll be looking at next week is is sort of, uh, I think that, you know, these events, uh, COP events and and, the United Nations, the Rio Plus 20 event, you know, how you look at it depends on, on where you stand, depends on where you sit, which is to say that, you know, if you're a government uh, negotiator, you might be kind of frustrated uh, with the fact that nobody really got what they want, which may be, you know, this may be a sign of success. Uh, if you're an activist, you're probably pissed that, you know, there seems to be so much corporate this or so few commitments or no price on carbon or some something else. Um, and it, But if you're a, a corporate a corporation, uh, a corporate leader, you may be looking at this saying, you know, this is real leadership. There's a, a lot going on on the corporate side. We feel really good about what we and our corporate brother, brothers and sisters have done in coming to the table with massive commitments that were never made before. So it'll be interesting to see if there's two. And then there's cities and there's other constituencies as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's always uh, this mixed bag. But we'll, we'll, of course, be there looking at the corporate lens uh, and seeing how what they're talking about matches up with what's going on uh, in the rest of the event. All right, so from COP21, let's turn to climate innovation. Joining me now is Green Biz senior writer Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? 
Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So you were at an interesting event a couple weeks ago in San Francisco that was focused on social innovation and specifically the idea of tapping into unused capacity to achieve social innovation. What, what did you learn there? Yeah. So people there were talking about using all sorts of tools to get at capacity, whether financial capacity, human capacity, idea capacity to get things done. And the tools that we've come to know lately as the tools of our time, social media, design thinking, crowdsourcing, were, were all talked about. But also investment banking was a big part of it. The Nature Conservancy is now using the private capital markets and investment banking to draw capital towards its conservation projects. LinkedIn talked about uh, tapping excess human capacity to put extra hours towards causes that need people. And Open IDEO talked about the crowdsourcing of ideas to you know, find the best solutions to our problems. So I'd love for you guys to hear what people from these organizations had to say. So we'll start with LinkedIn. I had a conversation with Meg Garlinghouse. She is head of what's called LinkedIn for Good. And she initiated this program that now has 26 million people. Here's what she had to say. So I believe that um, the biggest sort of unleveraged asset in the world is human capital. And in the context of LinkedIn, what social media and our social network is able to do is to help create the connections between the person who wants to do something and the need that's out in the world. We added the volunteer and causes section to our profile experience about four and a half years ago, trying to make the idea of social impact a professional norm so that it's not uh, something you think about at the sunset of your career, but something you're thinking about at the sunrise of your career. What, who and what you are as a professional includes who and what you are in the world. So we added that section about four and a half years ago, and to date there's about 26 million people who've added it to their profile experience. And what's even more compelling is within that section, you have the ability to check a box that says you're interested in doing skill-based volunteering or serving on the board. And to date, more than 7 million people have added that. I think a lot of people talk about social media being a disrupting force, but I actually think it's a force that's actually bringing people together who have a shared mindset and care about shared values. Um, and again, especially through networks like LinkedIn, you can actually discover who has that shared mindset with you. And through through connecting with them around shared values and shared ideas, I think we together can actually create a more efficient movement. I mean, there's a lot of organizations, Change.org, Twitter, that are doing extraordinary efforts. So I think the value of LinkedIn is because it's associated with someone's professional identity, it carries a little bit more credibility. That's fascinating stuff. I'm also curious to hear more about the financial component of all of this. We were just talking about sort of a little bit of friction between Wall Street and folks who are espousing clean energy, but what does investment banking potentially have to do with environmental conservation? So I find it really interesting that the Nature Conservancy, which is a half a century old organization, is doing really innovative stuff with finance to get things done in the conservation and environmental world. They began tapping the private capital markets to attract money to some of their big projects that they couldn't just raise enough money through philanthropy. And those were so successful that they then 
launched an investment banking arm, which they call NatureVest. And it attracts investors, promises them a return, both financial and social, and therefore attracts all those investors interested in some impact investing. I spoke with Sarah Hurd, who runs the kind of innovative approaches in California, and she explained how NatureVest works. We created NatureVest in 2014 with foundational support from J.P. Morgan Chase, and uh, it really happened after about five years of our involvement in impact investing. And we started this initiative because we really feel like there is a real opportunity um, to tap private markets and its capital, and it's so much greater than the funding that we have relied upon uh, through philanthropic and public sources. And that there's a real funding gap, uh, by one account, over $600 billion a year, and we're just not going to meet that through private um, foundations and public funding sources. So NatureVest is akin to an environmental investment bank, and uh, its mandate is basically to um, identify investment opportunities around the world uh, to create products and then to distribute them to investors. So uh, it's a really innovative and exciting approach. We're trying to leverage emerging marketplaces and see if we can um, crack the nut on impact investing for conservation and really um, leverage private capital markets. So Barbara, what about design thinking? You mentioned that earlier. Uh, what's, how does that fit into this and how does that particularly fit into this whole idea of excess capacity? Good question, Joel. So to my understanding, design thinking and somewhat akin to like crowdsourcing ideas or just bringing in more ideas. So design thinking has all the stakeholders who will be affected by a solution involved in designing the way to create that solution. And one way to do that is throw out a wide quest for ideas, otherwise known as crowdsourcing ideas. So one organization doing that is Open IDEO and they've launched several kind of online platforms to get ideas for solving environmental issues, including one happening right now, COP21. They've thrown it out to the public and say, what are your ideas for getting this big challenge you know, accomplished? And this is what Jason Riesman of Open IDEO had to say. We enable people everywhere to use design thinking to uh, collaborate in addressing pressing global issues. Uh, one of the biggest pressing global issues that we can think of is addressing climate change. And so we launched the Accelerate program. Uh, you can find it at openideo.com slash accelerate. Uh, and the goal of the program is to support innovation related to sustainability and climate change. Uh, we're doing that now through two initiatives. One is a Climate Innovator Stories Challenge and also through uh, uh, suggesting to partners, individuals, community members to organize events uh, under the hashtag COPISHERE, C-O-P-I-S-H-E-R-E, uh, to have conversations in your local communities about how we can support innovation related to climate change. Uh, and we're doing this alongside of the Paris Climate Talks. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Barbara. Sure. You're welcome. And have a great time in Paris. Thank you, thank um, you. Well.
to Paris, Lauren. Um, it's going to be a really, really interesting week that we're there. Uh, and we'll be doing our next podcast from the Business Hub uh, in at Le Bourget, where the uh, COP negotiations are taking place. Um, but, uh, wow, it's it, it, I thought it was going to be the first couple days would be busy because we have some events that we're, I'm, I'm speaking at and that we're live streaming and then things would calm down. But the whole week has just gotten so packed and we haven't even left town yet. I know. There's huge events every day and then not to mention we're going to be doing tons of interviews with the business executives, NGO folks that are on the ground. So it should be a lot to stay tuned to. Well, let's go through it. So Sunday uh, is the... Uh, World Climate Summit, uh, I'll be doing a, a session there on carbon pricing. Um, then later that evening is the Sustainia Awards, where they'll be uh, giving out some uh, uh, awards for innovation and sustainability. Um, Monday is the big day, really. It's uh, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development member uh, event uh, that we'll be live streaming on GreenBiz uh, at some ungodly hour for Americans. Uh, I think it's uh, 2 a.m. on the East Coast, uh, 11 p.m. Sunday night. Uh, I hear an all-nighter <laughs> slumber party. Well, for our staff, they will be uh, some of that. Uh, so we'll be live streaming that, and, and it will be uh, available on demand after that. And I'm going to be doing... Uh, uh, three main stage uh, panels, uh, all CEOs are equivalent. It's going to be pretty interesting. And then during the uh, uh, the halftime show, when they're all doing a 30-minute networking break, we're going to be interviewing. Uh, yeah. yeah, we've got Kellogg will be there, Yes Bank, which is a big financier out of India. Uh, so really cutting across sectors. And yeah, but, but it's, it's the, the chairman and CEO of Kellogg. It's not just... You know, some dude. <laughs> yeah, not just the guy from Kellogg. And the same and equivalent at uh, Procter and Gamble, and the head of a Indian bank called Yes Bank, and Peter Bakker, the uh, the head of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. So we'll be the halftime entertainment. Uh, yeah. You'll sing, I'll dance, and we'll do interviews uh, <laughs> uh, along the way. Um, and um, and then what's he Tuesday? What's happening? Sustainable Innovation Forum. That's at Stade de France. That's going to be really exciting. Get, turn a big sports stadium into a showcase for climate innovation. I'm curious to see what that looks like. And not just any uh, sports stadium. That was the uh, one of the scenes of the crime on the on the uh, uh, 13th of, of November. So that'll be an interesting place to be. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see that in the Blue Zone as well at the conference. That will be something we'll, we'll explain. And we're planning dispatches sort of take you guys along for a day in the life while we're there. So we'll be sure to, to tell you what it's like. And uh, Wednesday? Wednesday, we've got, I'm going to the New York Times Inner Energy for Tomorrow event. So that'll be all focused on renewable energy type stuff. Um, and then I think we're setting up some interviews. So stay tuned there. Yeah, and then Thursday, we'll be, uh, there's more. We'll be doing some interviews at the Business Hub with some uh, other business leaders and dinners and all sorts of things in, in between. So, um, and then recording a podcast. Yeah, well, we'll be uh, bringing it all to you uh, from Paris. I think it's going to be interesting, though, you know, as we've been doing really for months now, is looking at the business lens of all this. How are companies, what are they doing there? What are they thinking? What, what do they see as a win coming out of Paris? Um, and one of the questions I'm going to be asking them is, what are you going to be doing on the 14th of December? In other words, what are you going to be doing Monday morning differently than you've been doing as a result of, of COP21. 
Right. I, one thing I would say is just like we were alluding to earlier, just the volume of noise we're getting, all the press releases and everything through these through this first week, and I'm sure it's going to continue into next week, has been really crazy. Like, I haven't seen anything like it since I've been here. And it's will that completely fall off a cliff, or is this really some lasting momentum that we're going to see? Yeah, we'll try and bring some signal to that noise. And by the way, we're not the only two green visitors who will be there. Uh, Shauna Rappaport, our uh, director of engagement for Verge, is going to be over there uh, working uh, uh, with uh, some a number of other events that have more to do with uh, the NGO crowd. She's got uh, involved with something called Project Drawdown. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, next week. And and uh, our my co-founder and our president Pete May will be there, and he'll be doing some speaking too. He's a, a speaks French fluently, and he'll be speaking to a number of uh, French organizations and companies. So uh, we'll we'll try. We're going to try. Uh, for next week's podcast to get everybody together in one place, the four of us, and sort of compare notes about how the week has gone and what we've learned. It may just be three of us. We'll, we'll figure it out, but it, it's going to be a logistics puzzle as it is. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Yeah, I am excited about the, like you mentioned, especially Shauna. I know she's been involved in organizing some really cool events that fuse um, sort of public art with climate action she's looking a lot at the city's side in all of this um so a lot of perspectives that we're going to be bringing together and we're going to be shooting video photos we'll have lots of audio so we'll try to bring you all there with us So let's turn now to the topic of materials matchmaking. I know that sounds a little bit like eHarmony for waste, and there is something about that there where basically it's a, these are systems uh, that companies use to find external markets for uh, things that had previously been thrown away, uh, whether it's uh, scrap metal or sometimes it's, uh, it's actual products themselves or barrels or any number of things. Uh, and you, you wrote a story, Lauren, about General Motors doing this uh, and to this some very, very large uh, annual uh, revenue that's coming to them from uh, not only this, but all of their waste reduction activities. I guess my question here is, this isn't new. I, I remember writing about waste exchanges in the 1990s, back in the 20th century. What's new here that uh, General Motors is doing? So this is actually part of an effort by the U.S. Business Council for Sustainable Development, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, in a group called Corporate Eco Forum. What they did was bring together 23 really large corporations, GM, Nike, Dow, P&G, Starbucks, and sort of put them on an online marketplace. I know like you're saying back in the 90s, I actually was talking to Andy Mangan from the U.S. Business Council for Sustainable Development, who you'll hear in a minute. And he sort of talked about how in the 90s, they were literally standing over a bunch of spreadsheets and sort of saying, how can we pair these companies together? Yeah. And now it's it's much more um, automated online. Companies can sort of like Airbnb upload what, they're, what they have to sell and then others can reserve it that way. Um, and... So they had a total of 2.4 million tons of materials housed in 78 U.S. locations on this one pilot project, and there were 68 potential matches identified on this online platform. 
Um, and so the big question here is like, well, how does that turn into cash, <laughs> right? And so they're extending the pilot into early 2016 because all the companies said like, okay, we see the value here, let's let's do this. Um, but to your point, this is building on a lot of work that's already been done. This same group, the U.S. Business Council for Sustainable Development, already operates these marketplaces on a local level in Austin, Texas, and at a regional level in Ohio. So this is really all about scale and bringing more value out of waste. Right. It, it turns into to revenue in two ways. One is is avoiding costs of disposal, and the other is making money uh, from selling the re- renewable or re- recyclable material. I, I wrote about this, and this, again, goes back to the 90s. This is very old statistic, and I can't imagine that it's gotten smaller over the years. But uh, at one point, General Motors, uh, as part of their waste reduction activities, and they have a, they've had a, a landfill-free commitment for a long time and have over 100 facilities, some of which are assembly plants that have achieved that goal, as have many other automakers. But as part of that, they were banning... Uh, uh, wooden shipping pallets from their from their assembly plants uh, because they can't recycle them. They're one way something gets shipped in, in, a, in a pallet and they use whatever that is and you got a pallet sitting in the plant. So they banned those and they said that that um, their suppliers had to use corrugated cardboard pallets. So you can make a corrugated cardboard pallet that can hold a ton or maybe even a couple tons of stuff. And by moving from wooden to uh, cardboard pallets, General Motors saved $100,000 in disposal fees and earned $50,000 reselling the cardboard every day. $150,000 a day from pallets. So that's the potential here. And so this adds up for GM, right? Mm -hmm. It does. So GM overall now is they tallied this number a couple years ago now, and they said they think it's even more, but they're making $1 billion per year in revenue off of waste reduction and recycling efforts, and materials matchmaking is one part of that. So what I thought was really interesting when I spoke to Andrew Mangan from the U.S. Business Council for Sustainable Development was how this all ties into sort of the psychology of the circular economy, this idea that we could be using materials Um, reusing them back into supply chains and um, bringing more economic value out of them. And here's what he had to say about how he's seen that trend evolve over time. There are some big differences. Uh, One is that at the national level, all of the companies participating were large. Uh, Locally, uh, in Austin, for example, there are some large companies, but most of the companies participating are small and mid-sized companies. And so there's a, a difference in volume and um, scale. Uh, for example, General Motors has 35 plants, I think, in the U.S., and the, not all of them participated, but many of them did. And, and so you have this chance to, at the national scale to begin looking at very large volumes. I, we had, uh, I think it was 2.4 million tons uploaded by the companies participating and that did not include all of their facilities like i say so there's many more millions of tons we could put up there but as we moved down the path and uh, this was only a three-month pilot this summer so in three months we were able to get that data up get 20 turned out to be 23 companies familiar with the overall marketplace structure and the software and begin to interact with one another on potential synergy opportunities that we either they identified themselves having looked at the materials uh, or we helped guide them toward having analyzed the materials and identified 
the opportunity, potential opportunity for them and, and push that out their way. So that's one of the big uh, values of the marketplace at either local or national levels. But uh, it did also bring up a, you know, a challenge. How do you connect these smaller groups like you know, Austin or, or in Memphis, say example, for example, with a national effort because some of the companies are going to be operating in both. And the way we did it, uh, we've just developed it is to uh, establish a co-op model where you would have, um, if you were a municipal level uh, marketplace, you could join the co-op essentially like a, like a food co-op and uh, you'd have a rate that was uh, at that level, which is, you know, to offset operational fees is fairly low, but, and then uh, if you're at the national level, you'd be that national marketplace would participate at a higher, higher level, but everybody would then share their results with each other. So Austin uh, or Memphis would get access to what's happening at the national level and, and vice versa. So this is uh, conceptually, we could then apply this anywhere in the world. I mean, the circular economy is really about keeping the molecules in play. And so the, the question is, you know, how many times can these things keep going back into production? Is it a one-time one reu reuse or recycling? Is, or can it be truly endless, which is the goal here? We're going to be talking a lot more about the circular economy at uh, GreenBiz 16 uh, conference in uh, Scottsdale in February. We'll have uh, Ellen MacArthur, uh, sort of the person who's been doing the most uh, in terms of uh, promoting this idea of a circular economy and a whole bunch of panels and speakers looking at what companies are already doing, uh, you know, following in the footsteps of GM. Mm -hmm. And the folks at uh, the U.S. Business Council are also talking with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. They're talking with the European Commission, who's interested in what can regulators do to encourage a circular economy. So there's a lot to stay tuned to there. Um, but Andy also, I, I was curious to ask him about the issue of scale within their own system. Um, you have these local systems where my favorite anecdote was you've got brewers down in Austin who have spent barley what can they do with that? It seems like maybe it's useful. They actually found cricket farmers that needed feedstock. So there you go. Great match. Uh, but like, how, do, how does that work at the national level? Yeah, we had actually in the kitchen here at GreenBiz uh, Group this week, uh, a, someone brought in a, a kind of a granola bar that was made from beer waste. It said, it said on the wrapper, eat beer. What? Uh, I missed that. Yeah, it wasn't that good, actually. It was <laughs> a, little, a little dry. I felt like I needed a beer to chase it, all but right. anyway. In 1.0 version of a product, what can you do? Um, but all right, so to that end, um, here's what Andy had to say about taking these tiny level co-op models and bringing them up to national or even international scale. The circular economy has captured the imagination of a lot more people out there before that, it was called something different, but uh, and before that, something else. But uh, so, I love the wave. It's like this wave keeps rising. We're working with folks in Europe now through the World Council. The European Commission is very interested in uh, what we're doing, and there's potential for us to expand uh, the uh, have a marketplace deployment in Europe. I do think it's not about the technology as much as about the psychology of the people who are running the companies and their operations and more and more are, are understanding that 
reusing materials, taking every gram of material flowing through their operations and looking at it for what it is, a potential value. How can we make that happen in an economically practical way? And the marketplace fits that vision or that objective a lot of companies are moving toward. And uh, I think uh, it's it's the more participation you get, the more opportunities uh, will be created, and you'll will reach a point where it will become uh, the opportunities will will be uh, uh, self perpetuating, and we think we can build a smart a smart marketplace that could automate a lot of that as we go down this path. So as I mentioned, they're going to be continuing this national level pilot into early 2016, and we'll be sure to keep you updated. Uh, But for now, let's look at the week ahead. Besides COP21, we will have lots of coverage coming up next week on greenbiz.com. Joining me now is managing editor Elsa Wenzel. Hey, have we written anything about cop yet <laughs> i don't know it's i think i think it's going on but i'm not sure okay okay i don't know if we've talked too much about cop already but it is such a big deal i know in paris you're going to explain a few things um like what the world's biggest companies are doing there you lauren are also going to read between the lines on complex issues like carbon pricing and keep your ears open for what remains unsaid or unsolved at COP. That's the plan, yeah. We'll see how that goes. And you're taking it to the streets looking for plenty cool stuff and innovations that might be shown off, even if that means just random protesters, um, if anything quirky comes up. Yeah, if they'll let the protests go on, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, definitely. Lots to look forward to. But what else do we have going on next week? So, yeah, in non-COP articles, we have climatographer Mark Trexler writing a fun original piece about climate chess. So he's looking at key pieces of sustainability like divestment or climate communication that either advanced or moved back in 2015. He runs something called the Climate Web. It's a pretty unique research tool you can find at theclimateweb.com. And senior writer Heather Clancy will show how Target, Walmart, and others are pushing a makeover for the ingredients found in your makeup, unless you don't wear makeup. And <laughs> I'm wearing makeup today for once, but pretty soon our Verge team will publish some really provocative opinions about the future of technology and sustainability. Um, we'll probably have one of those pieces next week with words from Twitter co-founder Ev Williams, NASA astronaut Katie Coleman, and many more. Also, if you're in the City of Lights and want to tell GreenBiz about your own company's COP experience, please email us or email me at elsa at greenbiz.com, E-L-S-A at greenbiz.com. Or you can reach more of us if you write editor at greenbiz.com. Perfect. Thanks, Elsa. Um, For those of you who might be looking for a break from COP, we've also got a couple of interesting free online events coming up on December 8th. We'll have a, a fun title going on here for this one. It's Corporate Sustainability Reaches Middle Age. That's a webcast um, with the company Siemens uh, looking at some research into how sustainability commitments and the overall trend of corporate sustainability have evolved over the years. Um, And then on December 15th, right after COP, we'll be looking at why tackling climate change is good for business. That's another free webcast and that will Um, look at sort of the soul searching that's gone on at COP and sort of where we're all headed with climate change. Thanks, Elsa. Thanks, Lauren. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to Technical Director Soraya Melconian for staffing the dials. We always love to hear your comments. Send them to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Check us out on iTunes so you can subscribe to this podcast. And as always, for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business, visit greenbiz.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, Green Buzz. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time from Paris, have a great day.